CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thank you all for joining us for another edition of Political Rewind. Great to have you with us. I'm Bill Nygut. Uh We have a terrific show lined up for you today. Before we get to it, I want to make a, a quick couple of remarks. You know, I've always known that Political Rewind, because we have conversations with uh, people who are partisans in many cases, uh, because we talk about uh, politics and some of our panelists uh, uh, make judgments about uh, politics in such a way that there's controversy surrounding what they have to say. I've always gotten that. I've always understood that politics can be a, a controversial subject for many listeners out there. I have to be honest, I never expected that yesterday, having a an esteemed Catholic priest, one of the most influential rabbis in the South, and uh, also one of the most highly regarded Baptist ministers would lead to quite as much controversy as it did among uh, some of you out there. I got some terrific notes from some of you who thought that the way in which they talked about how they're handling their holidays, Easter, Passover, um, how they are trying to use faith to help uh, lift the spirits of their uh, congregations, uh, you, you thought that was terrific. And I also heard from some of you who felt that we were kind of peddling snake oil. That was really one of the comments I got. Uh, and I just find that fascinating. I like reading the criticism as much as I like reason, reading about the things that you like about the show. Um, but uh, I just wanted to tell you, I never expected, maybe I'm naive, that we would end up finding a subject like that quite so controversial. I loved having those three on yesterday, and I'm glad many of you agreed with me. Okay, that said, we have been, as many of you know, for the last few weeks, spending a lot of our time focused on COVID-19, talking to people who have expertise in the subject, uh, talking to those who are on the ground in various parts of the state dealing with the virus and um, we thought it was time to return to what Political Rewind is really all about, which is the subject of uh, politics. Um, of course, any subject, any, any conversation about politics today is going to invoke the coronavirus, and, and that will happen during the show today. But, um, but we are going to talk a bit more about campaigns in 2020, and we'll get to that, and I'll introduce the panel in just a moment before I do. Tom Faust has once again gathered for us the latest numbers on the coronavirus across the state. We now, according to the uh, Department of Public Health, have uh, 9,156 confirmed cases uh, across the state. That's up 1,598 cases in 24 hours and almost 2,700 cases in 48 uh, hours. There is now confirmed coronavirus in 155 County, so virtually every county with very few exceptions. Um, unfortunately, 348 deaths, uh, which is up 54 in just the past 24 hours. Um, but I want to give you another quick uh, note about this. Some of you may be reading or hearing and watching your news sources, uh, including ours, that uh, public health experts across the country are beginning to suggest that it's possible that the curves 
are not as dramatic as initially expected and that the disease, that the, the curves may begin flattening before many people had originally expected. And very quickly, because we spent so much time talking about it last week, we've been using the University of Washington's COVID-19 projections, which are kind of the gold standard in being used by governors and the federal government. And last week, we had pretty dire news uh, uh, about Georgia. Uh, It's a little bit, little bit uh, less dire today. Um, It appears that we're getting closer to the peak Uh, which we're going to reach on April 20th, the day that we'll need our peak resources. Uh, Initially, uh, the COVID-19 tracking project thought that we were going to have a serious bed shortage in hospitals and medical centers. Uh, They now say that in terms of ordinary, routine hospital beds, we're not going to have any shortage at all. And the ICU bed situation seems to have improved here as well. Uh, it used to be that they thought we were going to need a couple of thousand more than we would have at the peak of all this in a, few, in a number of days. Now they're saying the shortage is down to uh, only about uh, under 300. They're still projecting, uh, unfortunately, sadly, some 2,600 people uh, are going to die in um, Georgia uh, between now and around I think August 4th is the date that they give given that. All right. All that said, let's get to our panel today. We're joined, as we are on most Wednesdays, by Greg Bluestein. He's the lead political reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. He is at home with his two daughters while his wife is off working incredibly long hours because she's, uh, she is one of the uh, uh, medical administrators who has a huge responsibility in all this. Greg Bluestein, how are you and your girls getting along uh, locked in at home? <laughs> Today's a better day. They're making brownies right before Passover so, because we can't eat brownies once uh, uh, sundown hits. Um, a little breaking news, though, that just came in. Um, we reported early, earlier today yeah. that the governor was about to extend the uh, public health emergency, and a press release just came out that they are indeed going to extend it today through mid-May. So that's some, some breaking news for the show. Well, there's something important about that that we'll talk about in a couple minutes, as it could relate to when we hold our primary election, and we'll get to that uh, once we really get everything started here. Uh, From Emory University, I'm really pleased that we have uh, Drs. Alan Abramowitz and uh, Dr. Andra Gillespie, both in the political science department at Emory. Andra, how are you holding up uh, at home? I'm holding up okay. Hope you are, too. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, I'm doing all right. And Alan Abramowitz, uh, you have some news that uh, affects your folks right there at Emory. You have a new president announced today. Yes, that's right. Uh, Emory has announced that uh, the new president, uh, uh, Mr. Fenvies, I I forget his first name right now, but uh, yeah. I think it's Gregory. Gregory. Gregory Fenvies. He's been the president at the University of Texas at Austin for the past five years. And we're, we're hearing very positive things uh, about him so far. Okay, well, we'll uh, get a chance to talk about him at some point uh, mm-hmm. down the road uh, uh, because the change of presidents at Emory is important to the entire community. Coming to us from Athens today, Dr. Audrey Haynes. She, of course, is a political science professor at the University of Georgia and runs the Applied Political Science Program that trains people to go into careers in politics. How are you out there, Audrey? Uh, we're doing as well as anyone could be. Good. Glad to hear that. All right, let's get going. Um, Greg Bluestein, we've got to start out of state. 
watching the primary election unfold in Wisconsin yesterday, watching people lining up at polling places across the state when uh, when they were forced, essentially, uh, and we'll get into the details of why, to go ahead and hold the election yesterday was shocking. It was shocking that uh, uh, the state went ahead with this election. And it's important to talk about, first let's just talk about Wisconsin, because it informs us a little bit about what might be happening here with our primary election. But Greg, talk, talk about Wisconsin. There was, there, was a, there was a woman with a sign in, in one of the longer lines in Milwaukee that said, I can't believe we're doing this. Uh, and, and, that's, and there are signs like that all over. Um, uh, the New York Times had a, had a good roundup where it said that most of the problems, as you would expect, were, were in large urban areas like Milwaukee and in rural areas there weren't as much of an issue. But still, Milwaukee is, is, the, is the biggest, most populated um, city and county in the state. Uh, they had cut polling places for more than 100 uh, and 60 to five, um, and long lines that made it really hard to enforce social distancing and safety uh, sprouted as a result. Uh, a reminder of how important it was for the decision in Georgia a few weeks ago to delay the March primary to May. And of course, it seems even more impossible or more difficult to hold the the, the primary as scheduled uh, May 19th now after looking at Wisconsin. I, you know, there's still been no um, solid declaration uh, yet um, from Georgia, if they're going to move the primary to June or beyond, but it, it's it's, it's going to be a logistics um, uh, enormous logistics challenge, uh, especially after Wisconsin. I think that brought home the point to a lot of to a lot of Georgia officials how well, just in, it would be. Well, just in terms of that, I think I'm correct, Greg, that uh, by by extending the state of emergency unilaterally, which the legislature did give the governor power to do. Uh, there are those in the state who believe the governor now, under emergency powers, could uh, move the primary again. Am I correct? Um, I don't know if it will be the governor who makes that decision, but I'm, I'm expecting um, Secretary of State Raffensperger to. Um, they, they've been locked well, in a, in a you-can't-do-this, I, I don't have mm-hmm. the power to do it, only you have the power to do it. But I think that there'll, there'll be something shortly, is, is my, my expectation. Someone's going to make that move. Andro, one of the most astonishing sights I saw in looking at coverage of Wisconsin yesterday was the speaker, the Republican speaker of the Wisconsin Assembly, standing in full protective gear, a gown, a mask, uh, looking as though he had just come back from Chernobyl uh, doing a video telling Wisconsin voters how safe it was for them to come out to the polls and cast their ballots. Uh, it was a chilling image and absurd in, in many ways, Andra. Um, so I missed that image, but I think, you know, I think the thing that is particularly frustrating about what happened here is that other states who had had earlier primaries made the call to move their elections sooner. And there seems to be a particularly partisan angle to this state's uh, fight over it that's actually pretty pernicious. And so it almost seemed as though um, Republicans in the state actually wanted to keep the primary date on this particular date because they were trying to shrink the electorate to their favor for a judicial race that they were most interested in, not so much the presidential race. Um, and so that level of gamesmanship, especially when you had weeks of information that would have suggested that this was going to be near peak time for coronavirus spread, I think that's what makes this particularly bad. 
Um, and then also that there was no serious discussion, it seems, about um, absentee ballots, that perhaps even if you were going to hold the race on this day, to sort of let people, you know, who are already registered to vote uh, do absentee ballots, recognizing that in Wisconsin you can register on the day of an election. Um, but, yeah, it just seems like there was no planning, no contingency kind of put into place, and, it's, and, and that's what is really disheartening about this. Alan, uh, just to, to uh, amplify what uh, Andre is talking about, the Democratic governor of Wisconsin, Tony Evers, uh, and Democrats uh, in the Assembly all wanted to move the primary date again. As Andre points out, uh, one of the most important, right, it's not just did we have a, a presidential preference primary, of course, for the Democratic side, but there was a Supreme Court seat at stake, a state Supreme Court st- uh, seat, and uh, it was particularly crucial, it is particularly crucial, because whoever fills that seat will end up weighing in on a case that could allow for disqualifying more than 200,000 voters in Wisconsin from the rolls. The governor, the Democrats, said, let's move it. Republicans seem to want it to continue. And that seemed, given the circumstances, to favor rural areas of the state, less populated areas where it was more likely to have Republican turnout. Have I got that about right, Alan? Yeah, you've, you've got that exactly right. Um, and as Andrew was saying, the most disturbing thing, you know, I mean, the, the whole thing was disturbing, but um, one of the most disturbing things about this was a blatantly partisan uh, nature of, of this decision. Uh, and and the, you, know, you had the, the showdown between the governor wanting to move it uh, and the uh, Republican legislature wanting to hold it uh, because they thought it would benefit their candidate. And it went to the state Supreme Court, which voted along party lines, essentially, uh, to uh, uh, keep it on a yes, to oppose moving the date, and then it went to the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, and we had the U.S. Supreme Court actually weighing in on this. And yes, it was a five-four vote by the U.S. Supreme Court along straight party lines. All of the Republican justices voting uh, with the Republicans in Wisconsin to maintain the date, and not only to maintain the date but to refuse to extend the deadline for absentee ballots uh, to be cast. So uh, they moved that back to April 7th. So absentee ballots have to be in the mail by April 7th. They can be received after that, um, but uh, they would not allow that date to be extended either. And it, it seems like a lot of voters in Wisconsin have had difficulty getting their absentee ballots. A lot of people reporting that they had requested absentee ballots some time ago but never got them. Uh, it, it's, it's just a terrible situation, um, and we won't know the results now until next Monday, I guess, the 13th is, is when they're yeah. going to uh, report the results, and we'll see what happens in that, that state Supreme Court race. That's the only reason this has moved. Uh, that why this be, be so controversial. If it just been a, a presidential primary, I, I you know I think they would have moved it. I don't I don't think there would have been any problem moving it. So Audrey, um, the big question for us here in Georgia and for officials here in Georgia, whether it's the governor or the secretary of state, and as Bluestein says, they're battling back and forth over who has the power. Is if you're watching what happened in Wisconsin mm-hmm. yesterday. If you recognize, Audrey, that the virus is still likely to be a factor, 
maybe we hope not as big a factor as it is today, but still likely to be a factor. Do you have to think seriously about whether you can go ahead and conduct a primary on May 19th, even though the Secretary of State has taken positive and aggressive steps to try to uh, get people to vote uh, by absentee ballot? Uh, Audrey? Well, you used the word shocking when you were describing the visuals that we were seeing from Wisconsin. And I was speaking to a number of uh, individuals who are actively involved in, um, you know, uh, political activity here in the state. And, and whether they were Republicans or Democrats, they were aghast at that. And, you know, a, a lot of people who work in the Secretary of State's office were clearly uh, shock themselves that that was going on because they are taking the virus very seriously and the protection of all their voters. So the likelihood to me, um, giving, given the information we have, is that there is likely probably going to be a move and they're going to do all they can to extend uh, the ability of people to vote absentee, even if it were moved to June, because just like after 9-11, most people are going to carry that fear with them for a while. It is highly unlikely that people will want to turn out even in June. Greg, uh, talk about this battle, but when battle may be an exaggeration, but the back and forth between the secretary of state and the governor over who can move the election. I just, uh, I, I understand that there are statutes involved, uh, but I don't also know the governor has now expanded his emergency powers, uh, why can't he just suddenly take control and say we're moving the election if, in fact, his emergency powers allow for that? Yeah, his office says they don't. According to state lawyers, they, they don't have that power. Um, also, I mean, I asked him at the press conference uh, last week um, his thoughts on this entire debate. And he said, I'm, I'm too wrapped up in the coronavirus pandemic to even focus on it now. Of course, you know, he's, he's definitely aware of it. Um, but it's a, it's a tricky area that's becoming less tricky by the day because we have the Speaker of the House, the entire Georgia Republican congressional delegation, and many other voices who are advocating a delay um, of the primary. This, the state party, the state Democratic Party, um, ha- has up until recently continued to say that it still wants the, the primary to be held as scheduled, but with a number of safeguards put in place, too. So there's mounting pressure to at least, if, if they are continuing to hold it next month, to make some drastic changes. So, Alan, uh, let's skip to the premier race on the Wisconsin ballot and just talk for at least a couple minutes about the presidential primaries and and what all of this means. Mm -hmm. Uh, As you pointed out, we're not going to be able to get the results until this was a court mandate that because of the absentee votes coming in, Wisconsin could not release its results until a week from uh, uh, well, next Monday. Uh, Next Monday. So what what is if a, if a candidate wins an election, as we expect maybe Joe Biden will, in the middle of a pandemic forest, and it, it, does anybody hear the noise? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, yeah, I, I, I think so. Um, based on the limited polling that we've had, there, there was one fairly recent poll there by Marquette Law School, which is considered one of the better polling organizations up there, and uh, it showed Biden with a big lead over Sanders. And so, and interestingly, you know, the, uh, Sanders was pushing to have, very hard to have the, the election postponed. 
Uh, the Biden campaign was not. I mean, uh, Biden was kind of saying, well, you know, they could still hold this election and they could, you know, people could be spaced out and it could be done in a relatively safe way, at least until a few days ago he was saying that. Um, I think that there are some elements of self-interest in that. Um, I think they see this, uh, since it's the only primary that's likely to be held for weeks, uh, we haven't had one for weeks and there's not going to be another one for, for quite a while, um, that this was going to be a chance, you know, to uh, maybe force Sanders out. That if, if Biden wins by a wide margin, as, as expected, that there would be additional pressure on Sanders to end his campaign. Because if he, if he can't win in Wisconsin, where can he win? You know, this is a state with a very, yeah. progress, a yeah. very progressive uh, tradition and uh, on the on the de- Democratic side and he he won the, the primary there pr- pretty handily four years ago. So um, if he loses badly, I mean, I think there will be some additional pressure on him to end his campaign. Audrey, weigh in on, on how you run, especially a Democratic presidential campaign, when you've got the president of the United States going into the briefing room every day, holding one to two hour briefings that are covered extensively by the cable news networks. He commands all that attention. And you're Joe Biden, uh, maybe Bernie Sanders, trying to break through somehow. It's the most unusual campaign that I think any of us have seen in our lifetimes. No, and they've been trying very hard to be as creative as they can. And they, they started with that uh, that awful podium in his basement where he was wearing like a full suit and a podium, you know, with a the seal and people started uh, giggling about that a little bit. So they transitioned to doing more casual interviews. Um, and, and those were a little bit more effective. I watched one myself on The View and they gave him a tremendous amount of time. Um, and he comes off as much more casual and he has a great deal of empathy. But it is really difficult. So I think he's probably done about maybe 20 of those interviews over the course of the campaign. But Problematically, in a pandemic like this, you want someone who looks like they're in charge and that they're doing things and that they are providing information. And that's hard to do when you're in a campaign and you're stuck in your house. So uh, one of the things that uh, they are aware of is it's likely that their fundraising is going to suffer. He had his biggest fundraising uh, draw, uh, you know, mid-March before everything started, you know, um, closing down. And, you know, it's likely that they're going to see anywhere from a six to 10 percent drop, if not more. And and that is problematic. And, and, and they're also dealing with this notion of Sanders dropping out or not. So they're trying to be effective. He's got a new campaign manager and, uh, you know, they're in action. But people are saying, you know, where is Biden? Because unless you're watching The View or some other venue, you're not seeing him. He's not making news or in the news like like President Trump is on a daily basis. Andra? You know, I think, I mean, I think Audrey is exactly right. And this is just something that is going to be really hard for any candidate to be able to do. So unless you're, you know, unless you, unless Andrew Cuomo was running for president, you don't get the same type of earned media in this type of environment. And, you know, so for, uh, for, for Joe Biden, you know, it's just, it's really 
uh, a disadvantage for him to not be an office holder at this particular moment. Um, I would be thinking about the media strategy and about the persuasion, not that people are pretty persuadable at this particular point, but, you know, the one thing that uh, his communications team does have at its disposal is this idea of trying to figure out how to use uh, President Trump's words against him. Um, and so while he does have the sort of vision and the image of kind of looking decisive and being able to get on television for an hour a day and talk, um, sometimes if you take the mute off, you have to listen to the content of what he's saying and look at the contradictions with it. Um, and there may be a way to be able to undercut the authority that the president is naturally given as a result of you know being able to be president and being able to command a stage to point out what looks really ineffective. I think the other thing to look at um, in terms of public opinion surveys is that places where the uh, virus has hit hard are places, many of which were already predisposed to strongly disapprove of the job that President Trump is doing, but they are, these are also places where this is hit. And so, you know, while we may start to see a flattening of the curve in places like New York, uh, you know, we still have to be prepared for this to be a cascading peak and that this is going to hit red state America. And I think it's an open question of whether or not people start to change their opinion of the Trump administration and its aptitude in handling this crisis when this hits even closer to home than it already has. Uh, you know, Greg, I think Andre makes a really yeah, – yeah, go ahead, Alan, jump in. Oh, yeah, I wanted to just add add a, a brief comment about, about this. Is, we've heard a, a lot of Democrats have been fretting about uh, the difficulty that, that uh, Vice President Biden, former Vice President Biden, has been having in breaking through and, get, and getting coverage here. I, I think that, that that's exaggerated considerably. Uh, yes, he does have that problem, of course. I don't necessarily think that all this coverage is helping the president. Um, if we look at the polling on this, yes, he got a bump, uh, which you'd expect in, during a national crisis like this, but a really small bump. And there's some indication that it's already fading. And, you know, in, in the matchups that have been, we've been looking at um, between Biden and Trump, he hasn't, Trump hasn't gained any ground. Um, he's still right, right where he was, and he's still trailing. Uh, there was a, a new poll in Wisconsin, actually, uh, recently that, that showed him that was only one poll. But I'm sorry, in Florida, that, that showed him that uh, Biden actually leading in Florida, which would be a disaster for, for Trump if that were to actually a- end up happening. So, so I, I think this, this concern with, uh, you know, just getting more coverage, uh, you know, more, more coverage for Trump just tends to reinforce the opinions people already hold. He's behaving just like he always does. Uh, you know, if we see the way he behaves at these press conferences, I, w- I want to mention one other thing about the impact of this pandemic and how uneven it is. It's a very uneven across the, the country. Um, it's going to hit a- areas that have not yet been hit hard, of course. But we're finding now that this is having a very disproportionate impact on African-Americans. Uh, and I think that's something that needs to get a lot more attention uh, that that. Uh, you know, the infection rates and death toll is very disproportionate from what we're seeing. There hasn't been that much attention to this until very recently. And, um, you know, that's another thing that was very disturbing to me about watching what was happening in Wisconsin, because it's Milwaukee with a large African-American community where, uh, you know, where the, this is concentrated and, and where people were forced to, to, to get weight on these long lines. I think that's a really important point to make, uh, Greg. 
um, what, what Alan just talked about. The Washington yeah. Post, the New York Times, both have front page stories on just that this morning. And um, it, it's, it's a reinforcement of the fact, Greg, that this virus uh, once again exposes the chasms uh, between the haves and have-nots in many cases in this country. Um, it deals with people who are uh, underserved in terms of their medical needs, in terms of their insurance needs, in terms of income, access to doctors, that sort of thing. And some of that does obviously break along racial lines. Um, and, and so uh, that becomes even more uh, troubling. Andra, why don't you weigh in on that? So this is sort of 101 in terms of like what inequality looks like in terms of disparities. So um, when this news first came out, um, I happened to be on an email list with a bunch of senior scholars in African-American politics. And when one of those faculty members sort of, you know, pointed out the report on Sunday night, another one chimed in and was like, yeah, that pretty much seems par for the course. And, and he wasn't being cynical when he said it. Um, you know, we know that disparities and inequalities are real, which is why we see differences in terms of uh, in, in terms of racial preferences for certain types of policies. And so, when you are operating under sort of normal conditions where things are unequal, where blacks are more likely to have lower income and less wealth and less access to health care, um, when they do have access to health care, where the quality tends to be poorer because people don't listen doctors don't listen to what their African-American patients have to say across class lines, right? You can expect that you're going to have higher rates of pre-existing conditions or comorbidities in this particular case um, that are then coming into contact with the coronavirus and actually exacerbating illness for people. Um, when you are dealing with just the reality in terms of exposure to the virus, um, People who are poor um, are in service occupations that are now deemed essential, which we are all grateful for and, and, and are vital to running our economy. But that means that if that workforce is disproportionately of color, they're going to bear the brunt um, of exposure to the disease. And if that interacts with comorbidities, then we should expect higher rates. Um, you know, I'll be really interested. I mean, we, the alarm bells are going off because we have seen these exorbitantly high rates in Chicago and exorbitantly high rates in Detroit, where we know um, that inequality has just been a facet of life for long periods of time. I mean, sociologists can point to Chicago being the most, one of the most unequal cities in America, and that's something that they'll talk about for decades. This is something that scholars have been talking about for years. Uh, you know, it'll be really interesting to see what that looks like uh, when we have the national data compiled so that we can see this. I don't expect that it's going to be any different. But, I mean, I will remind you that scholars who study race and inequality have been sounding this clarion call for years, um, you know, and it's sad that it took something like this for this type of information to be taken seriously. Uh, Greg, we're, we're hard. Uh, uh, Got to get to a, a break. But before we do, let's put a finishing uh, uh, punctuation mark on this whole notion of where Trump stands in relation to this. I basically heard Alan and Andra say that right now, essentially, President Trump is running against himself as he conducts these daily briefings. The more exposure, uh, the more we uh, get a sense of how the American people feel about him as a leader. The newest ABC News Ipsos poll, uh, as Alan kind of alluded to in a general way, shows uh, that the president's approval rating is dropping again after peaking. Forty-seven uh, percent of Americans approve the way he's handling a response to the coronavirus, which is down from 55 percent just two weeks ago. 
And uh, virtually all Americans, 89% now report they are somewhat or very concerned about being infected by the coronavirus, which is up from 79% two weeks ago. So the President Trump really is facing the judgment of the American people when he goes to the podium every day, despite the fact there are those who think the media should stop caring what he's doing because they think it benefits him. Yeah, he is, and it also increases the challenge on Joe Biden to to present an alternate approach without looking like he's stoking more disunity. And that, that's what you heard from him about his call. He, he wasn't trying to overtly or at least at least jab uh, President Trump too much when, he, when they talked about their call from earlier this week. Um, one quick point to, to add on to what Professor Gillespie said. We have been struggling and striving to try to get breakdowns of racial disparities in Georgia. We have not yet got that information from the Department of Public Health, but in many regards, to be able to shelter in place and to be able to work from home is a privilege. Um, and so that, that's, we, we do expect those, that data out at some point, but we have not yet been able to do the same analysis in Georgia that, that we're seeing nationally. Mm. Yep. All right, let's uh, make that the last word of this segment because I've got to get a break in. Uh, but when I come back, we got a lot more to talk about on politics in Political Rewind today. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Audrey Haynes, Andrew Gillespie, uh, Alan Abramowitz, Greg Bluestein, join me on Political Rewind today. Greg, before we get to our next uh, uh, topic, Let's just take one moment uh, to uh, mention that people down at the state capitol are really reeling uh, the last couple of days. Uh, Jack Hill, state senator from Reedsville, who's been a powerful force in the General Assembly for many, many years and an extraordinarily well-liked person down there, Uh, one of the one of the people who knew the budget inside out and, and, and worked it harder than almost anyone else uh, passed away completely unexpectedly the other day. Just say a couple words about your experience of Jack Hill. I mean, someone who is a financial genius, someone who Georgia could really use right now with this, with this budget crisis that the state is about to, is about to get a lot worse. Um, someone who is not an understatement to say he was beloved by both sides of the aisle. He's a former Democrat who, who switched parties, but still still remain respected and revered, really, among his colleagues um, from both sides of the aisle. And, and really, it was a mentor to so many lawmakers. You, you heard from Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan, from Governor Kemp, from, from former Governor Nathan Deal, who all said they, they looked to him for counsel on on the budget, but also on a, a range of other policy issues. But the budget is where he made his biggest imprint, and uh, not a single thing in that budget uh, for, for the last decade or so uh, was, 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 was dropped in the budget without his either approval or without his influence. Uh, and that, that says a lot. I mean, we're talking uh, he, about multi, multi-billion dollar budgets. Uh, Audrey Haynes, um, one of the things about Jack Hill is we know that the fights at the Capitol are not just between Democrats and Republicans all the time. They're between uh, the Republican-controlled Senate and the Republican-controlled House often. Uh, Jack Hill, head of the Budget Committee in the Senate, though, 
And Terry England, appropriations chair in the House, who's from out your way, uh, had an extraordinary relationship. Uh, they fought against each other for what each House wanted in the budget, but they worked together uh, with uh, uh, great respect for one another, Audrey. And uh, that's going to be missed, I think, uh, in the budget process. But I, I would imagine you've dealt with Jack Hill and your role out there in Athens, Audrey. Well, you know, um, not as much as I've uh, interacted with uh, Representative England, but, you know, just recently when England uh, came and talked to my class, he mentioned those people, he mentioned those relationships. And, you know, that is going to be missed sorely, especially as Greg alludes to. I think we're going to be up for some very challenging times when it comes to the budget uh, in, in the future. And not having people like Jack Hill who are able to you know, just work together um, and bring those people together is going to be problematic. I hope that they will find more people like him. Uh, there's no ex- there's no reason we are told to think that um, that Senator Hill uh, died because of the coronavirus. Uh, no. We have not uh, heard the, the cause of death at this point. But uh, the coronavirus did take another extraordinarily well-known American, Alan Abramowitz, and you sent me a quick email this morning saying we should mention it on the show. And I, as a Chicagoan, I couldn't agree more. When I was in my 20s, I used to go into little clubs on the north side of Chicago where I discovered a guy named John Prine. Alan? Yeah, uh, John Prine's been ill for uh, some time with uh, coronavirus, uh, and he's been in intensive care on a ventilator for the past week or 10 days. So we knew that, uh, you know, he was he was waging a tough battle. He's had some serious health uh, battles in the past with cancer. Um, had part of his lung removed uh, a few years ago, but he, he, uh, he continued to uh, perform, continued to uh, write great songs. Um, he was actually on a, a concert tour this year. He was going to continue uh, that uh, you know, he was scheduled to give a number of concerts in the coming coming months, and uh, one of the uh, greatest songwriters of our time, great performer. We saw him here in Atlanta uh, last on November of 2017. He gave a concert at the uh, Fox Theater um, with uh, Casey Musgraves opening for him and performing some songs with him. Uh, you know, just incredible performance and uh, such an amazing talent, um, and so so well liked also, um, just by everyone who uh, knew him. Talked about how how you know just what a nice person he was, and uh, just his songs just touch your heart. And um, yeah, he's going to be sorely missed, but we you know we'll do, we'll be singing his songs, you know, forever. I think. Um. Bob Dylan called him one of his favorite singer-songwriters. By the way, Sam, uh, there's a Rolling Stone put up a playlist of John Prine's greatest hits. If we can find that and put it on our social media pages, we really ought to do that. All right, uh, back to our political conversation. Um, Andre Gillespie, we keep learning more and more about stock trades that um, Mm. Senator Kelly Loeffler has made. And, uh, I mean, we can go into the details uh, in a moment here uh, in talking about the fact that she got a briefing uh, in late January about the fact that the coronavirus was looking like it was going to be more serious than people realized, yet she came out of the briefing and reasserted the president's 
comments that it isn't going to get that bad and at the same time sold off a good number of her stocks, bought a few others that appeared to be uh, stocks that would be of value during a crisis. And, and the news doesn't seem to stop. There are more revelations coming out we can talk about. But in the long run, this, this is not a passing story, is it, Andra? This thing is going to stick to her, and it's going to be up to her to fight against it. Um, I, I would agree. I mean, so the problem for Senator Leffler, and I think probably what makes this potentially more problematic for her than Senator Perdue, who also has stories coming out about his stock trades around, um, you know, a couple of months ago, is the fact that she was still a blank slate. She was still being defined. She still wanted the opportunity to define herself. And this isn't allowing her to do this. And this is giving ammunition to both her Democratic opponents, but then also to Doug Collins as well. And I think the issue is I think she thought that she had dispatched the whole debate by saying, you know, somebody else makes these decisions for me. I'm not actually involved in the decisions. But because this isn't truly a blind trust, um, and then also because there is just the drip, drip, drip of more information, it's going to make it really hard once we come out of quarantine for her to be able to redefine herself. So this isn't particularly good news for her. And I just think from an, a normative and an ethical standpoint, it raises the issue about whether or not we should require all federal officers in Congress and the president to, like, do the blind trust and to make sure that they are above reproach in their, in their business activity. And Bill, can I add to Greg? Uh, oh, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I was going to add that um, this story, because it is related to the coronavirus, that coverage has really permeated. I had um, some individuals who were doing some work on my house, social distancing and everything, and I overheard their conversation. And guess what it was about? It was about Kelly Leffler and their anger about that activity. So, you know, not only people who are you know, strictly paying to the, paying attention to the news, that's something that people are talking about, and they're talking about it very negatively. And that may be one of the reasons that we see Doug Collins coming out with his internal poll that says he's doing better. Yeah, yeah part of the Greg Bluestein. There's been an ominous silence, Greg, from Speaker from uh, Majority Leader McConnell about his support for her in the last uh, couple of weeks. <laughs> Yeah, we also saw his his super PAC um, uh, roll back on some of its ads, um, temporarily pause some of its ads. We're, we're not sure how long they were being used to support her. Um, the interesting, the, the, the challenge, one of the challenges, and there's many for the Leffler camp, is she's one of the, she's the wealthiest member of Congress, worth more than five hundred million dollars between her and her husband. Um, what what we're hearing from some of her allies is that these sales amount to you know. $100,000, $50,000, whatever profits that are a drop in the bucket for her, but to me and you are a tremendous amount of money. Um, mm -hmm. So trying to, trying to show that, 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 you know, that she, she didn't willfully uh, – they're, they're trying to assert that she didn't willfully uh, manipulate her stocks or, or trade to benefit herself because, because you know, making $500,000, $300,000 wasn't worth it to her to do that. At the same time, $500,000, $300,000, whatever it might be, is a huge amount of money for voters she's trying to connect with. So that's a challenge that is really hard to crack for them. And Alan, in a larger sense, doesn't this just emphasize that Kelly Leffler is not one of us? She's one of them. She's one of the privileged. And doesn't that 
uh, no matter the details of the stock trades, work against her in a large way, too. She, As an example yeah. of that, uh, she did something very charitable. She sent her private jet to pick up some Georgians who were stranded, couldn't get back to Georgia, couldn't find commercial flights. Well, I mean, that was a charitable, lovely act. But it reinforced our notion that Kelly Leffler has her own very big, beautiful private jet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think it looks very bad for her. I, I think that her, her uh, extraordinary wealth and privilege um, was going to be an issue in any event. Uh, but this is, this is just, you know, these revelations about the stock trades, I think, um, are terrible. And, um, you know, I, frankly, I would not be surprised if she gets forced out. Um, before before the election, we still got you know that election doesn't take place until November, um, and I, I mean if she doesn't drop out, I think she's finished. I mean I think I think she has no chance to make it past that uh, in, into a runoff. So yeah, I, I think I think this is it's just it just looks worse and worse every day for her. Um, Andre, that's a really kind of bold prediction that very well mm-hmm. might be the case. Um, and it's even more so because it isn't as if she's got maybe one opponent. It isn't as if she's just running against Doug Collins in a primary election. She's going to be on the ballot with 20 candidates in that uh, jungle election on November 3rd. And so that really makes her problems uh, even greater, it seems to me, Andra. Well, and it makes the problem greater because she's got a formidable Republican opponent. And so, you know, they're fighting to see who can get into second place. So, you know, I'm going to assume, I'm not going to be as bold as Alan, but I am going to make a prediction that the Democrats are going to coalesce around one candidate. They will figure out uh, what to do there the same way they did in the Georgia 6 in, um, in, in 2017. Um, and so she doesn't want to be in third place, right? Because then that doesn't give you, you know, the dance card to the next election. Um, and right now, it looks like, you know, her being the out-of-touch rich person uh, who maybe the base didn't necessarily want, but Brian Kemp wanted, is not the sort of narrative that you want to take going into the election. We still have plenty of time, but like, People's, if people's opinions of her are starting to solidify, and one of the things about that Collins poll that was really interesting was that um, her don't knows in terms of the favorability ratings were actually much lower than I thought that they would be at this particular point. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you know, still about a quarter of, of, of the voters that they surveyed didn't know, you know, didn't really have an opinion of her, didn't know who she was. Um, but as that number starts to go down, if her unfavorables are still net unfavorable, then that's going to be a problem for her because it's going to be really hard for her to kind of turn her image around. Yeah, if I could add Greg, something. we got to get uh, to a break, but I want to okay. give you the last word on this. Yeah, Professor Gillespie is right. There, there was no rallying around the flag um, with, with Kelly Leffler because Doug Collins has so uh, motivated the, the grassroots base. So she's getting sniped on the right and on the left. And they're, they're, you're, so you're not seeing a sort of coalition of, of, of Republicans saying, oh, no, this is not as big of a deal as the new media is making it out to be. You're actually instead seeing Doug Collins uh, promote all sorts of articles, including from Fox News, which has also begun to, to get on the story. All right. We got to get to our final break of the show. When we come back, uh, some news from John Lewis. This is Political Rewind. <laughs> We're back uh, for the last few minutes of Political Rewind, and I'd like to, just for the few minutes that we have, uh, uh, 
Alan Abramowitz, I'll let you start the ball rolling on this. Um, John Lewis uh, came out the other day and endorsed Joe Biden for president. Uh, not a terribly big surprise, I, I would guess, at this stage. Uh, at the same time, he also made it clear that he thinks that uh, Biden ought to pick a woman to be his running mate and uh, suggested he'd like to see it be an African-American woman. Talk about that, mm-hmm. Alan. No, it's not surprising at all that um, that he would come out and endorse Biden. Um, I'm kind of surprised he didn't do it sooner. Um, and Biden's already, yeah. of course, uh, uh, indicated he's going to choose a woman as as his running mate. And there's been a lot of debate over you know, over well specific individuals and 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 whether it should be a woman of color. Stacey Abrams' name, of course, is one of the names that gets that mentioned. Uh, I, I don't know that she's near the top of the list, but. Uh, but yeah, so I, I uh, you know, I think there's going to be some effort to try to try to, you know, sort of influence uh, Biden's selection. Uh, but I don't think we're going to hear from him about that for quite some time. Yeah, Andra um, Lewis called uh, him a man of courage, a man of great conscience, a man of faith. He will be a great president. He'll lead our country to a better place. Um that, that's a lovely endorsement. One of the things that's interesting about all this is that Jim Clyburn of South Carolina has added a name to the women he thinks Biden should look at, and that's Mayor Bottoms here in Atlanta, uh, Andra. Well, I mean, that would give John Lewis an embarrassment of riches in terms of who to lobby for. So he'd have two women who live in <laughs> yeah. his district to advocate for yeah. um, for uh, for being uh, uh, on the vice presidential list. I mean, so, you know, Keisha Lance Bottoms, of course, was a very early endorser of Joe Biden campaign for him in Iowa. Um, uh, we, you know, have suspected for a long time that, you know, uh, that uh, Vice President Biden has a very sort of uh, warm and respectful um, appreciation for Stacey Abrams, who, you know, as a result of her gubernatorial bid, has been sort of a national player in Democratic Party politics. Um, you know, I think it's just, you know, the endorsement wasn't a surprise. Um, the timing of it actually doesn't surprise me. I think he wanted to wait to kind of see sort of which candidate would emerge as being the front runner. Um, I, I think that this is a, a sincere endorsement, um, but I also think that in some ways Congressman Lewis is trying to push Joe Biden to, you know, make sure that he factors diversity into not just gender diversity, but also racial and gender diversity into his choice when he's making his VP selection. Audrey, we got just about a minute to you know weigh in. Well, I would I would add one thing, and that is. Um, the Democrats have a very deep bench when it comes to qualified women. And Biden said that in a recent interview. In fact, he said that on The View while I was watching it. And, you know, that list of, of women is indicative and, and probably should send uh, an alert to Republicans that they need to do better promoting women uh, within the Republican Party to run for office. All right, we are just about out of time. We got one minute, Greg. You got about 20 seconds. The front page story today about the three emergency hospitals that the state is preparing, one at the World Congress Center. Yeah, that shows you how seriously the state is taking this. Um, They're going for lower-hanging fruit right now, like hospitals that have been closed or about to open, um, speeding that process up. But at the same time, um, the fact that they're looking at the Georgia World Congress Center and and other convention centers means that they're getting ready for uh, anticipated surge. Bluestein, you get the last word in. Greg Bluestein, Andre Gillespie, Alan Abramowitz, Audrey Haynes. We are out of time on Political Rewind today. Tomorrow we look at Phoebe Putney of Medical Center again. I'm Bill Nygut. See you then. <laughs>